0: Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like fine oil upon the head that runs down upon the beard, upon the beard of Aaron, and runs down upon the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon that falls upon the hills of Zion, for there the Lord has ordained the blessing, life forevermore. That's Psalm 133, the psalm appointed for today, the second Sunday of Easter, April the 11th, 2021. So in our lessons today, we're going to begin the sermon today with uh, the gospel, actually, because that sets us in time and space, and, which is the week after the resurrection. This is, uh, John tells us that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So Jesus has appeared to the disciples that, who were afraid. They were afraid of the Jews. They didn't know what it meant that he had been resurrected. They were believing, at least a couple of them were, Peter and John, because they had found the empty tomb. And they had heard the words of Mary who had seen the risen Lord and spoken with him. And so, But they're still hiding for fear of the Jews. And who could blame them after what all they had seen during that week? They, they had to know that they were targets, They were targets of the Jewish authorities because they had been with Jesus and they would have a testimony of Jesus. And also because the body was stolen, Matthew's gospel tells us that they were actually the suspects. They tried to say the story that was cooked up was the disciples had, what, overpowered the cohort of soldiers that was there, removed the stone and then removed the body. That was the story that had been cooked up. And so the disciples were targets they were suspects in the disappearance of the body of Jesus which would have been an enormous breach of um, Jewish ritual purity laws for them to have had contact with a dead body in this way so the they're hiding there and Jesus shows up and his first words to them are shalom be with you he's wishing them speaking into them the peace that only he can give and so that one thing they needed more than anything else that day would have definitely been peace because they would have been in fear of so many things and been in doubt about so many things and the last thing they would have been experiencing at that point was peace and so jesus comes and those are his first words that he gives them and then he shows them his hands and his side, he shows where the nails had pierced his hands and where the spear had pierced his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then he said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So Jesus is wishing them peace two different times. Once because they were fearful and then the other because they were so rejoicing that, that they needed that peace in both places. And so... After he said that he then breathes on them and and says receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of any they're forgiven them if you withhold them then it's withheld and so he's giving the disciples a certain kind of commission here in this next phase because they they're receiving a portion essentially of the Holy Spirit Uh, not all because the it awaits the fulfillment of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out from heaven. And so here is a a specific kind of um, reception of the Holy Spirit that they alone are given, just the disciples. And and you wonder then, because the next thing we read is, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So did Thomas, does he receive the Holy Spirit later? We've got to believe without any question that he did, because Thomas becomes one of the chief uh, missionary apostles uh, later in his life so he he's not there and the other disciples told him we've seen the lord yeah uh-huh unless i see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side i will never believe You know, how would you feel if you're on the other side of this thing, right? So there's 10 of us sitting here who have seen Jesus. We absolutely saw him. We spoke with him. He did all these things. And we tell Thomas, who's been with us these last several years, that he has missed the most important thing that ever happened. But we, all 10 of us, have a testimony that we have seen the Lord. And he says, yeah, nope, nope, not going to believe you guys absolutely not. You must have seen a ghost, is essentially what he's suggesting here. And the reason I say that is, is he says, I have to see him, but that's not the end of what Thomas is demanding here. He says, I've got to touch him. I have to have contact with him to see that he's more than an apparition. And so, eight days later, which again, we're on that same Sunday, the following week, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. And Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Yeah, that, that had to be like the worst moment of Thomas's life, even more so maybe than the crucifixion, because he's called out in a way that proves that Jesus knew everything that he had said knew what his demands were and his response was my lord and my god thomas believed as soon as he saw he didn't have to do the physical things we don't know whether he did that or not but we know that he believed based on evidence that had been given to him now was he wrong no he wasn't wrong at all that they believed the disciples the rest of them believed because jesus appeared to them that night and you know, I grew up and spent most of my life thinking about this whole idea of Jesus appearing in a room behind locked doors and all that kind of stuff. And and I think I got it wrong because, in my mind, he, he was kind of a ghost, and that's what was happening here. But C.S. Lewis provides a little bit of different perspective on that. And what Lewis says is that the resurrected Christ was actually more solid than anything that is on earth because he is eternal. And so it's a different form of life. But it's not less substantial, it's more so. And then he talks about that in The Great Divorce as well, uh, about the, the reality of our world not being as solid as the reality of God's world. And so Lewis provides that perspective to say Jesus didn't sort of materialize through the wall. The wall sort of dematerialized through him. And quantum physics would say basically the same thing and say, that's exactly right. At a quantum level, that table doesn't exist because there are spaces between the quantum particles. And so Lewis was on to something with that idea about Jesus not passing through a wall, but a wall passing through him. And so there's a, there's a substantial reality to Jesus that's greater than any of these things. And so he's able to then impart this peace to the disciples. And in his presence, there is that peace. So he has to say it whenever he appears to them, because it, it, there, there's a fearsomeness in him appearing in that way. It, it, they've got to be assured that all is well. And so every time Jesus shows up, that's the word that he gives to them is peace be with you. It's the word he gives to us as well. And in every single circumstance, when he shows up, that's what he brings with him when he comes. And so we we pray always for that shalom peace to be there because it's it's the peace in the presence of the living God who is the lover of our souls, the one whom Jesus died to make propitiation for our sins in order that we might be reconciled to him. And so when he comes, he brings peace along with him. It's the first gift, I think, of the Holy Spirit is that peace that passes understanding that says, no matter the circumstances, we can transcend those things because we know they're just circumstances. They're, They're circumstances in which we find ourselves at the moment which will all ultimately be reconciled at the coming again of Jesus Christ. And so it's it's a great blessing that he would give that peace to his people and that he gives that peace to his people even today. And at the end, after Thomas's confession, Jesus says, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And he's speaking of us. We have the benefit that Thomas doesn't have. The Holy Spirit's been poured out on all flesh, And so if we see and we believe, then it's because of the Holy Spirit acting in us to cause us to believe. And so we we have not seen with our eyes, but we've seen through the witness of these men, through the witness of the Gospels, through the witness of Paul and the witness of the church, not just in the time of the apostles, but down through the ages. And we've got so many stories of so many people and their encounters with the risen Lord and the miracles that he has done over all these centuries but then we also have the witness of the Holy Spirit in our own lives that testifies to the truth of these things and then those things are intended to lead us and change us and make us into new communities all united in one faith and in one confession Of Jesus Christ his Lord and Savior the one who died on the cross at Calvary and took our sins upon him died was buried and then three days later was resurrected from the dead we have that experience testified to in us by the power of the Holy Spirit and that's what then gives us the power for living and the power that we can have knowing that we do have peace within us because we know that Jesus has overcome every single circumstance And that there is eternal life and it is a a community of those gathered who are as the old illustration says one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread and that's who we truly are we who live in this sort of insubstantial reality that's all we know sort of trapped in the matrix right and then there's this other reality that Jesus exposes makes manifest through the power of the Holy Spirit in him during his life, but then also that same power that resurrected him from the dead lives in you and will resurrect you from the dead as well. And we're meant to be different kinds of people for that reason. We're meant to care less about the things of earth and more about the, the people that we run into on this earth and the people whose lives are closely linked with ours. And, and that's our most important duty, is loving one another as we love him we are his hands and feet in this world to others. And so when <clears throat> when the plague broke out in the 3rd and 4th century early on, one of the greatest things that um, Rodney Stark, who's a, a historian of religion at Baylor University, who is not a Christian, he's a, a believer in God, but, but he, he hasn't made up his mind about Christianity, at least the last time I saw he hadn't, what he observed was is that one of the great things that happened during the plagues it, is the thing that grew Christianity more than anything else because the Christians stayed behind and cared for people. They didn't abandon them. They didn't leave the sick and the dying, and they stayed with them. And the church found root because of the love and the fearlessness of Christians. Does that describe us very well today? I'm not sure whether it does or not, to be honest with you, but, but that's what grew the church, and, and they were protected in some ways. I'm not saying that every single Christian was protected from the plague. I don't mean that at all, but what I'm saying is is that, that they cared for intended to the sick and the dying in such a way that it was a witness to the rest of the world, not just to those who were sick and dying, but, but to those who had loved those who were sick and dying who themselves had fled and left them behind. And so how about the church maybe give some thought to how we could do those kinds of things today what, what is it the church is uniquely equipped to do and will strike out with fearless abandon to help in those situations where are those places and what are they doing? and i'm not saying christians aren't doing it they're doing a lot of good things all over the world i'm just saying that we in our own place can do those same things by the power of the Holy Spirit living within us if we give some thought to how Jesus would have me minister to people where I am today. And so here in this epistle lesson is where I want to go next. Is it's is There's an epistle and a lesson from Acts. There's actually not an Old Testament lesson today. So the epistle is 1 John 1, 1 to 2, 2. And John here is speaking to a group of people who, who are apparently questioning what they believe and the reason they 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 are questioning it at some level is because uh it's clear from john's writing here that there's a there's another group of people who have come in and preached a different sort of gospel and that different sort of gospel has to do with this life whether it means anything or not whether this body means anything or not and that's the main thing they're questioning is the 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 embodiment of of life because they say that the soul that's inside is life the body is just this decaying thing that covers the important thing it protects the soul but it can't do any harm to the soul so whatever i do to the body won't harm the soul and they they're what we believe are two things basically they're gnostics which means that they claim to have knowledge that it is greater than um any knowledge of other human beings that they have some special revelation that that God has given them that supersedes anything in the in the word of God and anything else that other people know and understand it's same is true today when we we look at people who are trying to say oh no you've got the interpretation of these passages wrong and you've had them wrong for a couple of different millennia but I'm bringing a new revelation yeah well no God didn't let the church live in error concerning the word of God for a couple of millennia. Not likely. It's more likely that you're just wrong and you're interpreting it in such a way that you prefer to interpret it. And so we have to be careful of anybody with new teaching like that. The other thing that these folks were teaching, we believe, is they were what is known as docetists. And it's from the Greek word docaine, which means that to seem And what they were teaching was this weird sort of heresy that that Jesus wasn't really human he just seemed to be a human that's because that's what we needed to see was was this person who seemed to be human and further what they taught was what it wasn't actually Jesus who was crucified on the cross no what they say is that when Joseph of Arimathea takes the cross from Jesus as he stumbles then the the spirit of Jesus jumps into the Joseph of Arimathea body, and the Joseph of Arimathea spirit jumps into the Jesus body. So the Jesus body is crucified on the cross, but not the Jesus soul, because it was Joseph of Arimathea. And so Jesus in the Joseph of Arimathea skin suit then stands to the side and laughs at how they foil the plot. The answer to that is no. And that's exactly what John's saying, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And again, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John's saying, look, if you want to have fellowship with us, if you want to be part of the group that's called Christian, you've got to believe the things that we testify to because we have seen, we have heard, we have touched. So we know because we were there so the apostles are having to make their own authority clear here and it's the authority of having been with Jesus they know that they weren't deceived into believing that he just looked like this man called Jesus no John says these are things you have to believe and it's the way the churches use creeds down through the ages it's to say that that this is what constitutes Christian belief and if you believe things other than this if you don't believe these statements, then you can't properly call yourself Christian. And so it defined what the contours were of Christian belief very early on. They're talking about, in some cases, in the 2nd century or before, and certainly with the um, the Nicene Creed in the 4th century, we've got clear evidence that the Church had settled on certain beliefs, and the Church had also, well before this, settled on certain books that would constitute the new testament and so the there's always been heretics but there's always been orthodoxy and john's saying here orthodoxy matters we have fellowship with you to the extent that you believe the things that we have written and the things that we have taught and he says more than that we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete because you're part of our fellowship And then he goes on to to tell what that message is. We've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John says there is such thing as sin, while the docetist would say there's no such thing as sin because it's only the soul that matters. And, And if the body partakes in these things that people call sinful then it's of no consequence because the body's of no consequence. It's not an eternal thing. Therefore, we don't have to worry about what we do with the body. It's only our soul that we have to protect. I have no earthly idea how you separate those two things in that way. Science would certainly teach us there are two different things there because consciousness is a different sense. But, but the reality is our bodies and our souls are, and our spirits are inextricably tied together and the, the story of creation where God forms the man from the dust of the earth and breathes his spirit into that body would certainly tell us that no, anything that teaches that the body is unimportant is a lie. And it's the most important thing to remember about the resurrection is Jesus took on, um, not the resurrection, but the incarnation, Jesus took on flesh to redeem flesh. If my soul's not touched by the things of the flesh, the things that God calls sin, then I've got to say well then then does the f- why? why have flesh at all why do any of this stuff but no Jesus took on flesh in order to redeem flesh and we'll have glorified bodies absolutely but we've got to keep these in good working order and we can't do that if we're engaging in sin all the time we have to walk in the light but we also can't deny sin and that's become a problem certainly In the world and even in the church is that we deny such and such behavior is sin. We deny that this is sin. We deny that sin. I mean, things like gluttony. Even There's all kinds of things that you may not have thought I meant when I said that that are actually sins. And we need to be careful about those things. We need to, to tell the world that there's an alternative way to live. And that, that includes taking the body quite seriously because it was something that was created by God. And, and, and that body means something. Paul says it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to take that idea seriously and we need to take care of our bodies in ways that, that show that our own appreciation for the great gift of life that God's given us. And then John goes on to finish with, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous one he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world this word propitiation means essentially that 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 something is sacrificed to to atone for something to appease or cover over the sin and with the result that there's reconciliation that's happened. So there would be propitiation in all kinds of different covenant agreements that if this happens, then you must do this in order that we can be reconciled and restored to the previous relationship that's established by the covenant. And so Jesus provides the propitiation necessary for God to look on us and love us, even though we're sinful beings, because he took on that sin in his flesh on the cross. And so because of that, we've been reconciled to a holy and righteous God through the holy and righteous sacrifice of the sinless Jesus who took on those sins. And he's not just the propitiation for our sins, John says, but for also the sins of the whole world. And so that's the reason we proclaim Jesus. If you, There's nobody on earth who has not sinned, and therefore what we do in proclaiming Jesus is that we are proclaiming the good news that you can be forgiven from your sins and you can be reconciled to the God who created you. And that's the fellowship, that's the brotherhood that's being established in this, the brotherhood that is described in Psalm 133, where we live together in unity, but it's unity of confession, unity of belief, unity of purpose in our lives that's exactly what gives us that unity that the psalmist is speaking about here and, and the blessing of that is life forevermore and so when in acts they've formed this community after pentecost and they um in in this particular passage it begins in an odd place this has been after Peter and John have been arrested and set free by the Sanhedrin. So then they had prayed and they had prayed for boldness. And it says the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The church needs to pray more for boldness today because we, while we maybe expect... That, that it's going to get difficult for us and we're going to be sort of persecuted for the things that we hold to and believe. The, the answer to that is not to shrink, it's to become bold. It's to boldly proclaim that and trust in the Holy Spirit and trust in the power of God. And he says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. It got to be such a big thing that they ended up with widows and orphans and all these other people who were needy around them and the resources were so great that the disciples whom apostles now decided what we really need to do is we need to deputize some people just to handle this stuff that make sure that everybody gets fed we've got to devote our time to teaching and prayer and so we need some help and so that's where the first group of deacons were formed it was to distribute all the stuff that they had to the people who had need who were coming into that fellowship and so this is a, a, a people that that are th- believing more or less that that Jesus is coming again very, very soon, probably in their own lifetimes. And so they don't care. They don't care about anything they have. I I don't consider that I own any of this here. I'll give it to the community and the community can then prosper in a new way, which then becomes another catalyst for growth within the community because they see this alternative community that's formed and that alternative community has less concern for itself than any community you'll ever see in your life. The people don't care about themselves. They care for the community. Their hearts were turned inside out towards one another in a powerful way. Man, you read this to some congregations, you begin to preach about this, people get worried that you're getting ready to start a commune. And I'm not saying that at all, not even close, because God never said this is the way to live. But the reality is we sometimes are so far from the understanding or even the hope that he'll come soon that we cling to the stuff of earth instead of allowing him to do as he pleases with what we have. And so this, this sense of community that's intended to be created by Jesus is intended to be the kind of people who are like Jesus, who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, seized, or held on to, but he let all that go for love of you, for love of me, for love of the world. And we're called to be like him. It's a tremendous challenge, and it's a tremendous call in our lives. And will we accept that challenge, and will we allow him to do as he pleases with the things that he has given us, including our very lives? You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and thank you for that. And if you've got any prayer requests or any other comments, please leave them here on this Facebook page that's linked below.